The following audio is from The Springs Church. More information about The Springs Church is available at thesprings.cc. Well, Becca, wherever you are, I mean, if, if you'd like, you can just come up and preach today because that was a, that was a tremendous job. And um, that was very moving for me to hear and uh, to be able to participate uh, and be invited and to Ben and his family to, to share communion with them was, was very meaningful. So again, I mean, you can read on, on the stage. My name's Kerry Verner. I work at Oklahoma Christian University uh, where I run a coffee shop called The Brew. And I recognize through these lights lots of faces in here that I've seen in the coffee shop. Uh, some I recognize as colleagues. And some of you I recognize you because, well, you worked for me. Um, and it's good to see you. So the brew was set up a little over five years ago, and I can honestly say it has been my favorite job. I haven't had a whole lot of jobs, probably still in the single digits, upper single digits, but I can honestly say that it it has been my favorite. But that does not mean that the last five years have not been hard. I have three kids under the age of eight, so it has been hard. And for those of you that have been through it, you know it is hard. For those of you who have not been through it, you're just going to have to take my word for it. And for those of you who are going through it currently, may God have mercy on your souls. (laughs) So over here is my family. Um, I've got my son, Jude. He's on my daughter. He's waving. There you go. Uh, My daughter, Millie. She's six. She's waving. And then my daughter, Josie, she just turned four this month. And um, we're excited to be here. The saint that is tasked with wrangling these children is my beautiful wife, Kinsey. She's sitting over here holding Josie. And I just want to say thank you to, for asking me to come and speak today. This is, um, sermon prep is a spiritual discipline that it reads you. And it speaks to you. And I had a professor uh, that once said, you don't read scripture. Scripture reads you. And when you get to spend a lot of time in a text, you spend a lot of time being read by the word of God. So as I mentioned a few moments ago, the brew has been my favorite job, but it's not been my only job. The majority of jobs I have had have been in ministry to some degree. Um, with the exception of when I sold popcorn for a movie theater. Um, That was a great job, honestly. Uh, I'd still be there if my dad didn't make me quit. (laughs) But it was while I was working one of those jobs that I encountered something, a series of events that ultimately led to two straws, sort of, that broke a camel's back for me. Um, Which was, first... I gave a lesson about the Lord's Prayer one Wednesday night in which at the end I prayed the Lord's Prayer and I invited everyone to pray it with us and afterwards I was pulled aside and told not to pray that prayer because uh, when it says kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, well, the kingdom's here. The kingdom is the church so you don't need to pray that prayer anymore. That was a head scratcher for me. And second, pretty shortly after that, there was a lesson given in which um, I don't remember exactly. I just remember sitting there and basically getting the effect of, if you've been baptized into Christ, but turned away from your calling, then there is no more forgiveness for you. 
And I talked that day with my wife, and I said, I, I have to get out of here. My faith is barely holding on. You see, it's the only time in my life I felt hopelessness. I was truly hopeless. I, I thought God was great, but if this is the way the church is going to be, then what do we have to offer the world? If we believe this is the kingdom as it is in heaven and that the mercy of God has its limits, then what hope is there to be found in our message? Have you ever felt hopeless? Are you losing hope that there will be that significant other that comes along and you'll find your spouse? Maybe you're losing hope in the marriage that you have and it feels broken and you wonder if it will ever be restored. For some of you, you're wondering, is there, is there any hope left for America? For some of you, you're wondering if there's any hope in the relationship being restored with your child that is broken. And if you're like me, you're wondering if there's any hope that the Dallas Cowboys will ever win another Super Bowl. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I lost that hope a few years ago, actually. I am truly hopeless about the Cowboys, it feels like. But I will watch them again this year, and I will be devastated. <laughs> if you've ever experienced hopelessness, or you've ever lost your hope, then you know how isolating it feels. And it's with that feeling of hopelessness that I want us to turn to the text today. If you have your Bibles or your smartphones, which I know you got those, go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 11. We'll be in just verse 2 and 3. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one? Who is to come? Or should we look for another? Now hold up. I thought this was John the Baptist. This doesn't look like the John that we see earlier in Scripture or that we talk about all the time. This is a man who is isolated in prison and he sounds pretty hopeless. In Matthew 3, if we look at Matthew 3, we first meet John, and he's baptizing all these people in the wilderness, and he's calling people to repentance where they come and they can confess their sins. And he's doing something, not to go too deep into this, but he's offering a baptism when there are two groups of people that already offer baptism. That's the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But because of the Sadducees being sort of this corrupt group of people and uh, they're kind of wanting money if you're going to have a baptism and, and have a cleansing, basically an indulgence. Um, and the Pharisees are saying, well, you have to be upright and holy and it's very limited in who can actually come to this. John is offering baptism to the masses and a cleansing to the masses uh, that they don't have opportunity to come to because the Pharisees and the Sadducees kind of monopolize baptism. And so whenever the Pharisees and the Sadducees come rolling in, John loses it on them. He calls them a brood of vipers. 
and says that the one who comes after him, who's, he's not even going to be worthy to carry his sandals, is going to be greater than him, and he's going to have the authority to judge them. He says his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And he's speaking of Jesus. He is sure of who Jesus is and he knows why Jesus has come. And that's how he parts ways with Jesus after his baptism. So what happened to go from John the Baptist being so sure of who Jesus is to, are you sure you're the guy? Are you sure? I feel like maybe there should be somebody else. So why does John lose hope that Jesus is the Christ? And I think we have to look at the text, Matthew 11. When he heard about the deeds of Christ is when he sent his disciples. There's something about the actions of Jesus, the deeds that happened before this, that caused John the Baptist to lose hope. And I want to go back and I want to look at some of those deeds, starting in, in chapter 8 of Matthew. And I'm not going to be able to address them all because Jesus does a whole lot. But I want us to look at three. The first is Matthew 8. Uh, starting in verse 1. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him, and behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof for them, or to them. So when he came down from the mountain, what mountain are they talking about? Well, this is right on the tails, uh, the coattails of the Sermon on the Mount. This is the sermon where Jesus really shares so much of his teaching about the law. This is where he says things like, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Careful with the last one. It can get you into some trouble. You see, these are radical yet logical interpretations of the law and the prophets. And we see his deeds follow his teaching kind of naturally as this, not only should you say what I say, but you should do what I do because I will live out my own sermon. And so when Jesus is approached by this man with leprosy, we need to connect it to the teachings that were right before. But I, I want you to know a little bit about leprosy. First, you should know that leprosy, when you had this disease, it made you unclean in Jewish culture, which meant uh, you had to walk around telling everybody you were unclean. Stay away from me. You had to isolate yourself. Don't come around me. I'm unclean. The second thing you should know is that leprosy is uh, 
not a specific disease. It's actually kind of a generic term of some skin illnesses. And it can range all the way from uh, the terrifying, my skin has fallen off. You know, my mom wrote a song about this in college. Leprosy, all my skin is falling off of me. <laughs> yeah, that's what I think of when I hear leprosy. But it also ranges all the way to a bad case of acne, which makes me really glad, actually, because, that we don't do this anymore, because when I was in high school, I would have had to walk around the halls going, unclean, unclean, leper coming through. But that's not where we are. There were prescriptions given in Leviticus of, of how to deal with leprosy and, and how to deal with um, sort of this broad spectrum of where you are. You can become clean again. Not always. Sometimes you have a, a life-ending disease of leprosy, but sometimes it's simply a skin illness that's clearing up. And almost everyone would experience sometime in their life a period or a season of being unclean. And so this wasn't a, a terrible diagnosis always, but it was certainly an inconvenience. So you were not going to do something that intentionally made you unclean. You'd have to spend several days, I think the prescription was six days, apart from others, announcing you were unclean. And that's just not something you were going to do. So when Jesus reaches out and he touches this man. Make no mistake about it. Jesus is now unclean in this moment. And again, it was not sinful to be unclean, but in most regards, it was shameful. And for many, it would have been offensive as this did not go against the oral tradition of the time. Jesus never breaks the law, but he is willing to break oral tradition. And so, because he's willing to show mercy, he will inconvenience himself for almost a week. It was offensive that Jesus would touch an unclean man. The second story is right on its heels. It says, when he heard, or when he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And, a centurion, and to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. This story told in the book of Mark 
uh, tells us that some days had passed between these events. And that encourages me to believe the fact that Jesus did touch the leper and then follow the procedure of how to go from unclean to being clean. Several days passed. And immediately, he comes into contact with a pagan. Not to mention an enemy of the Jews. Now, the centurion's home would have been off limits to Jesus because at that time, if he would have stepped foot in his home, Jesus would have once again become unclean and therefore needed to undergo the same procedure he had just been through. But Jesus is still willing to do it again, to isolate himself for another six days to help out a Gentile. But apparently the centurion knew enough about Jewish culture to know that it would bring difficulty to Jesus. And so he just says, just say it. Just say it and it will be done. And Jesus is so moved by this man's faith that he says, truly I tell you, no one in Israel, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. And he says this part about the East and the West. He's talking about Gentiles. Truly, I tell you that Gentiles will be at the table. They will be in the family and invited in. But some of our family, some of the Jews, you won't be. That's some of that winnowing fork language right there. I think maybe John the Baptist would have appreciated that. But you see, in a group of Jews, Jesus reveres the faith of a Gentile. And more than that, he reveres the faith of an enemy. It sure sounds like Jesus is living out his sermon when he says to love your enemies. As if that weren't offensive enough, Jesus then tells the Gentiles that they will be a welcomed part and that the Jews, some of them will be excluded. It was offensive that Jesus would revere the faith of an enemy. Now, the last story I want to look at is Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city, and behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. And when the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to a man. And to be honest with you, this has been probably my favorite story of, of the year of Jesus. It has really hit me. Uh, I've spent quite a bit of time wrestling with it. The Gospel of Mark says that uh, the man was l- lowered by his friends to the roof and that they started digging it apart. And I've always pictured, I don't know about you, but I've always pictured this scene as Jesus is teaching in a home and then like debris starts kind of falling in and they're like, wait, what's going on? And then the roof's open and they're just like, 
Geronimo! You know, they drop this guy down in there. Um, and it all happens over the course of a, of a couple minutes. But the archaeology in that area says that that couldn't have been the case. In order to get through the roof, it would have taken a couple hours. And that really changed my image of like what Jesus is doing in this moment because I think Jesus was teaching and talking and he hears this ruckus go on the roof and he, realized, he realizes what's happening and he says, all right, let's just sit. Let's wait in it. He knows, oh, this is going to be so good. This is going to be such a wonderful teaching lesson for these people because they think his problem is paralysis. That's what they think his problem is. And so I just imagine the disciples around there. It says some of the scribes were listening. I imagine them like, oh man, when they finally get through there, they've disrupted the teacher. He's going to tear him a new one. Get him, Jesus. Right? To which the only thing Jesus says is, take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. And that wasn't the man's problem, right? The man was paralyzed. He was unable to walk or work or bring any value to society. But Jesus knew this man's real problem is that he needed forgiveness. And immediately we see the scribes get upset to a point that we can't even fathom. And their understanding of the law, only God can forgive sins. And so when Jesus claims this, their brains just stop computing. They're so boiling mad. There's no getting over this obstacle for him. You see, it was offensive for Jesus to forgive a man his sins. Jesus' actions were not all neat and pretty like we see them today. Like when we watch some of the shows and, you know, Jesus is like in white cloaks and his beard is so well groomed and he's got a gorgeous middle part. Right? Oh, hello. No, it's not that neat. It's not that simple. His actions were offensive and they did not meet the expectations of the people who were anticipating the Messiah's coming. And one of those devout religious people was John the Baptist. And the work Jesus was doing was not meeting his expectations. And he began to lose hope that Jesus was the Christ. John lost hope because Jesus brought mercy, not judgment. And I love going back to 11. I love how Jesus answers him when he sends his disciples to, to ask of him. Starting in verse 4, you know, he does not say, I'll, I'll say, he does not say, yes, John, I am the guy. No worries, bro. Hakuna Matata, right? I got this. Instead, what he says is go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. He's in essence saying, yes, these are all the deeds that I've done. You have heard exactly true accounts. And yes, 
It is offensive to touch an unclean man. And yes, it is offensive to revere the faith of an enemy. And yes, it is offensive to forgive a man his sins. But look at verse 6. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. There is something so offensive about the mercy of God. To those who think they have earned it, it is unfair that others receive it. And to those who think they don't deserve it, it is indescribably overwhelming. It wrecks their lives. Fishermen stop fishing. Tax collectors stop collecting. Doctors stop healing. The deaf can hear. The blind can see. The mute can speak. The lame can walk. The dead are raised. The unclean are made clean again. You see, the hope of the gospel is alive and well. Still today, the mercy of God is overwhelming people and wrecking their lives. Those with addictions are made clean. Those who have been rejected are accepted. Marriages that were once broken have been mended. Families that were torn apart have been restored. I heard it put like this from a former biker gang guy who almost took his own life. But there were actions of a friend of mercy that reached out and broke through. And he says, it was by God's mercy that I went from a hopeless dope addict to a dopeless hope addict. It has never been because of righteous judgment. It has always come through the mercy of God at the hands of another. It does not come, hope does not come through the hand on the winnowing fork, but through the hand on the leper. I'll finish with these two things. If you're feeling hopeless, look around you. I know enough people in this church, although I don't know all of you, I know enough to know that this is a loving place. There are people who are eager to show mercy to others because they have seen it and experienced it firsthand. Don't live a hopeless life. Embrace the hope that is the mercy of God at the hand of your brother or sister. If we want to partner with Jesus in his ministry of reconciliation, in his ministry of bringing light to the darkness and hope to the world, then friends, show mercy. Look for ways to be the hand of Jesus reaching out and touching the unclean. You see, I can speak of this because my hope is in heaven, but my hope is not only in heaven. I see hope in action when heaven comes bursting forth into this world today. So we ask God together, as I end, I want y'all to say the first part of the Lord's prayer with me, even if we do get in trouble. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, 
your will be done on earth as it is in heaven.